Church, if you have a Bible near you, you're going to want to find your way, at least briefly, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And our text of study this morning will at least broadly be brought out of this text, verses 4 through 10. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God... You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become a stone. A cornerstone and a cornerstone of stumble uh, to stumble over and, to, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't have a Bible, and it will not bother me if you do this, you are welcome to come grab some here on this little stand we have right here. Obviously, it's hard to put Bibles out for everybody in these seats. Uh, be patient, church. As you know, we will have chairs here very, very soon. They're on order. Uh, I know we'll all be wondering what we'll be uh, glorying for that day when it happens. Uh, hopefully early September we'll have those things completed. Um, before I jump in this morning, I just want to say thank you. Thank you, first of all, for being a church that allows us time to get away and uh, get some rest, visit some family. Um, we did a little camping. It was a good, good time for us to be away. We had youth camp a few weeks ago, and then we, it's just been a really uh, good little time to re renew, but I can assure you we are glad to be home. There's only so much time you can be away from home and be out of your routine before you go, okay, it's time to get back. And so we're glad to be here. I'm glad to be back um, here, being able to share the word with you this morning. So today we're going to start a new series, at least for the next six weeks. Um, we're going to go carry this all the way through to the end of August. And um, I just want to kind of, kind of frame this a little bit for us as we kind of jump in here together. Uh, it was kind of driven by a, a meme I saw a few weeks ago, then I saw it repeated again this past week. And both of them were shared by people that I know profess to be believers. Um, it was about football. It's that time of year, right? Everyone's going to get ready for football, college football, and whatever. And, but it, it, was, it was almost like it was this, this was the mission, that you need to get pe kids playing football again. Why? Because we need to teach boys to do hard things. Now, you know me. I'm a big sports guy. I love sports. I don't know that there's really anything I won't watch or participate in. Um, and so this is not about sports per se, but something about that meme irked me a lot. And it probably is driven by the fact that 
the people that were sharing it, and again, I saw this in two, maybe three different times by different people, were people who are believers, people I know well, love them, and, um, but they wouldn't apply that same ethic to the church. The church is too hard for them. It's too hard to wrangle up the kids. The kids get, you know, they do their thing on Sunday mornings. They make noises and, you know, and all that fun stuff. And so it's just too hard for my family. It's just easier for me to find a church I can either watch online or it's a church I can, that's going to have all kinds of other different programs. And, and, and let me make sure that I'm clear about something. My concern here is not the debate between what we offer kids during church services and not. I, I don't, that's not what we're talking about. Not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about is this kind of growing culture that we live in, and I think Christians accommodate into, that says, that caters to the individual, that caters to felt needs. Again, not that we shouldn't have some level of concern for those things, but they tend to trump the beauty, and I mean beauty, of the good and yet very difficult work of doing the, and being the church. That we, when we come into this place on a Sunday, when we have classes, when we have discipleship groups, listen, it interrupts our otherwise very happy individuality. But it's meant to be so. It's meant to do that. It's meant God is in using the church to interrupt us in our otherwise happy little narrative that we kind of go about trying to create for ourselves. And so this series is driven off this kind of concern I have that's coupled with several other concerns. One is, here we are, uh, we've passed the five-year mark as a, as a church fellowship. We have met in a private school library, right? We've met in an elementary school. Now we uh, have this space here God has provided for us. We're renovating this space. We, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know it's been like navigating all kinds of things to be able to meet here. But, but I love the fact that we're embracing that as a church because we recognize the church, as Delon said earlier in his prayer, it's bigger than the building. It's bigger than the, the programs. Um, and as we have grown in these five years, particularly over this last couple years, and we've seen so many of new families and new faces and we continue to see them, it just felt really needed at this juncture to step back and ask the question, what is the church and why is the church a big deal? Because it seems to me, beyond even our own particular issues or in challenges that we have in our own fellowship, that in every generation, um, we are presented with a challenge to work to preserve our identity, to preserve our mission. There's always this attempt, and you know it, you've seen it, you, you, you don't have to get too far out there on social media and other news organizations and out there in the world, you don't even have to hear, get too far and hear other, how other Christians even think and talk about the church. There's always attempts to steer the church away from our call, from our work. And so I really feel like the next few weeks, we try to do this every year, at least I've been doing the last couple of years, do a doctrinal series. So this is going to be a series on the doctrine of the church. What do we believe about the church? We're expository here. We go through books of the Bible primarily as our normal, you know, uh, 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 preaching course here. But every once in a while, you need to stop and just define certain very important foundational things for the church. And that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. 
So my goal this morning, and if you really want to say the goal that I have for the next few weeks, but particularly this morning, is really very simple. This morning I hope to lift, all right, lift our affections for the church as described in Scripture. That's my number one goal this morning. Then I have a second goal. It'll be to, in some way, identify together what are those threats that the church must always be on guard for. All right? So it's to lift the, our affections for the church as described in Scripture and to make us aware of those threats that seek to thwart our mission and our work at any given turn. And, and listen, I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I don't necessarily see these things as issues that we're facing, but I can see these as issues that I think the larger church in America perhaps is, is facing. And I want to make sure we know what we're about. When we have people walk in here and they want to know what we're about, I want to make sure we said it clearly what we're about, and particularly if the scriptures drive that. So let's look at that first portion of my goal. Let's seek to lift our affections for the church this morning. Here's the statement that I want to build that off of. It's very intentional, and it's loaded. So I need you to put your antennas up, okay? I want us to consider that the church, all right, the church is God's new nation of redeemed image bearers. Whew. There's a lot of stuff in that, right? We are God's, uh, the church is God's new nation of redeemed image bearers. Now, why do I frame it that way? Well, I think, as best as I can tell, the scriptures, this is probably the, the best summary I can think of of what it means to be the church. God's new nation. So the word new is intentional, nation is intentional, of redeemed, that's intentional, image bearers, that's intentional. Why have I chosen to say that is our kind of, that is the way we're going to look at loving and having a deeper affection for the church? Well, because it is Trinitarian. In that statement, we're seeing that there's this new people who are formed Loved, created by the God of the universe, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to break down that statement for the next few minutes for us. And just let us see, peek behind the curtain, if you will, of how wonderful it is to know that what we actually are. Because you may not even be aware of this. Of how wonderful it is to be the church. And so when we're thinking about this new nation, we're thinking about the uniquely loved and called out people by the Father. And when we're talking about being a redeemed people, we're talking about those people who've been ransomed by the Son. And when we're talking about those people who are made in the image of God, we're talking about those people who have been dwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. See it? Trinitarian. It's all the Father, all the Son, all the Holy Spirit working to form this new Trinitarian community. So let's talk about that first part, this new nation. This new nation, it's it's this uniquely loved, uniquely called out, and I'm going to say chosen people beloved by the Father. What do we mean by new nation? It is a chosen people beloved by the Father. Now, here's our confession, or one of the confessions that we hold to here at Grace Church, um, the Second London Confession. Chapter 26, paragraph 1 says this, the Catholic, that is universal, church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, 
Here it is, though. Here's the main part. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered to, into, uh, into one another under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him, meaning Jesus, who fills all. Now that paragraph is just pregnant with so much wonderful truth to us. But the main thing that I want to focus in on is, is that full number of elect called out of the world. So when we're talking about these people, this new people, this new nation, this chosen beloved people by the Father, they are a called out people. Ecclesia is the word we use in Greek. It is but here's the question that it be, it begs this question. What does it mean to be called out? What are we called out of? Well, let's consider, just let's consider this morning. Again, we're going to look at a lot of scripture. But we saw it a little bit here in 1 Peter, right? It says, you are a chosen and honored corner. I'm sorry, you are a house being built up into a holy priesthood there in verse 5. It says you are in verse um, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his God's possession, Jesus' possession, so that you may proclaim his, the praises of the one who came, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called out of the world. Why is that important? Well, namely because of what we've seen unfold in the narrative of Scripture. Let's just, let's just do a historical sketch for a moment, can we? Genesis 1, right? God's good creation. If you went to camp, you heard me talk about this one night. There are our youth who went to camp. God's good creation there, created in the, created God, and the God created in the universe, and he makes mankind the pinnacle of that creation, male and female who bear the image of God, Adam. Then later on in chapter 2, God begins to show us another glimpse of that creation, how he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he gives Adam um, commands and, and prohibitions there in Genesis 2, verses 15, and you know what it is, right? Here's this wonderful garden eat of it enjoy it that's part of god's command go enjoy all the creation that i've given you steward it well but then he says but there is this one tree you are not to eat of and once you eat of it if you do you will die now of course we know death there does not mean physical death at least not immediately it does mean it means spiritual death which we'll cover out here in just a moment and so Adam had two choices before him. Adam and Eve both had two choices, and it's the same two choices you and I have before us. We can either earn life by obedience to God, or we can earn death by disobedience to God. Now, anyone want to venture a guess as to what we've chosen? Yeah, we've earned death by our disobedience. And we've done it through Adam, and we've done it our own selves. This is what the course of all humanity has been since the beginning, since the garden. Our course has been we have earned death. We, not only did Adam earn it for us, but we earned it on our own. Yes? And so this is who Adam is, and this is what God has created, and this is what has happened to fracture in all of the creation, particularly among mankind. And so what happens to Adam? Well, we know in chapter 3 of Genesis, God puts his curses on Adam and Eve, and they earned a death. They are now going to have enmity between one another, enmity between them and creation, we know that he makes them leave the garden, which is, of course, his presence. And when they leave his presence, what else leaves with them? Well, of course, the spirit no longer is within them because God creates them, right? Breathes his spirit into them. And they leave now without God. 
This is the course of all humanity. This is what we are born into. This is what it means to be Christian. And it's very, um, it's one of our most basic Christian confessions. But here's where it gets really, really good. You think all is lost. But God is not, everything is not lost. Because before we even get out of chapter 3, before the garden is even set, the, 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 the exit from the garden is completely at full course, Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve, hey, I will send a serpent crusher. All right, this serpent's going to be a, he's going to be a thorn in your side all your, all your days, but there's going to be coming one from you, and he will be the new seed, and he will be what, he will be what Adam was not and could not be. And he will crush the head of that serpent. He will destroy sin and death forever and ever and ever. And so then what it is is that God makes a pact with mankind. Mankind fails to keep that pact, but then God comes back and he makes promises. And here's what's wonderful about these promises. It's God that not only makes the promises, it's the God who keeps them. Because what happens in Genesis 3.15, right before they leave the garden? They're getting ready to go out of the garden. What does God do? Well, he provides covering for them. He goes out and they had they have sown fig leaves over themselves. But God says, that won't do. And he takes a sacrifice and he puts real clothing on them. He provides cover for them. It's a picture of the gospel. So he doesn't leave them without cover. He makes a promise and he keeps the promise. He makes a sign and he keeps the sign. He does the same thing in Genesis 9-11. 9-11 is when they're at the end of the, the whole Noah and coming out of the, the flood. And he makes a promise and he, make, and he puts the rainbow in the sky. You know it. And what does he tell Noah he's going to do? He says, I make a promise to you. You go and do what you're told to do. But from this day on, I will never destroy the earth by flood again. Who's making the promise? God. And who's going to keep the promise? God. Genesis chapter 12. He does the same thing with, with, with uh, Abraham. And he goes to Abraham. He calls this happy little pagan out of his happy little pagan life in Ur. Just like he does with all of us. We're all happy little pagans without Jesus. I hope that doesn't offend your sensibilities, but it's truth. But he takes us out of these places. And listen, Abraham was fine. He was in Ur, and he was serving his father, and he had his brothers there, and he had all this. Like, he was doing great. But he goes to him and says, hey, I want you to go out to a land. I'm going to show you. Okay, great. I'm going to go somewhere. I don't know where I'm going yet, but I'm going to trust God. But he does it. And in that, as Abraham's following God into a land he doesn't know, God makes promises to him. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to raise up a seed from you. And that nation's going to be a blessed. That nation's going to bless all nations. And who is it that makes the promise? God. Who is it that keeps the promise? God. Because he's the one who provides the seed. He provides Isaac. And he's the one who does that, right? The reason I'm trying to show us this wonderful, like, theological foundation for the church is because it helps us understand more and more about what we are. If we don't understand the history of what God has done to create a new people for himself, we will miss the, the beauty of what it means to be this. All these promises are made and guaranteed by God. And you can keep on going. I could go to a lot more places in the Old Testament. Now, we all know that ultimately, where are they fulfilled in? The new covenant, when Jesus comes. Right? And the good news is, is that when he makes a covenant, he keeps a covenant. And we can see this in Hebrews chapter 12. 
I'll turn there real briefly. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 20, verse 23. Here's real briefly. To the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in the heavens, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect. And what he's talking about here, by, in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, what we're saying is, is that Jesus comes as a mediator of this new covenant. He ratifies all the, God's, all the promises God has made. He does it himself. We see it again in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We studied this a couple, I guess it was last year. And we did it for, uh, I don't know, I think we spent 14 or 15 weeks there. Look at verses, uh, t- verse 10. As for a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ... Both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is God's plan to bring everything is going to come to come to fullness in Christ. Verse on down, verse 20 through 23. He exercised this power in Christ by the raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of, in heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under to his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So what does this all mean? Putting all this together here. God's chosen people, this new nation that has been completely pulled up under Jesus and who is the final ruler of all these things. What this means is, is that God's new nation is, is, is God's people. And they're his people. Why? Because God said so. At the very beginning, Adam forsook that right. He forsook that opportunity. And so did Adam even, and so did everyone else in all of humanity has done the same thing. But those who are found in Christ are part of God's new nation, chosen and beloved by God. That God's had this sequence of redemptive history that he's been doing since the beginning. And he's fulfilling, he's making promises, and he's keeping these promises. And he keeps them finally and fully in Jesus. That's the first part of our Trinitarian formula, isn't it? That we understand that we're this new nation. Church, do you see how beautiful it is that you and I are this new nation? This new people who've been called out of, remember Ecclesia, out of darkness into God's marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2 tells us. But we need to talk about this idea of being God's redeemed people. Remember he said it was God's new nation of redeemed image bearers. What does it mean to be God's redeemed people? Well, to be God's redeemed people, then, number two here, this first idea, is to be a ransomed people freed by the Son. We've kind of already kind of peeked it back at it a little bit, but let's look at it a little bit more. Again, going back to our confession, the New Hampshire Confession says it this way. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon him our nature, yet without sin, he honored the divine law by his personal obedience, which Adam did not do. Again, he's the second Adam. He is now enthroned in heaven, and by his death, he made a full atonement for our sins. He is enthroned in heaven and is united and uniting in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is in every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. 
So not only are we this new nation, but we're this new nation by virtue of the Son sent from the Father to make that happen. Do you understand that? You're not the new nation because you were good enough. You were obedient enough. Abraham was not the nation because he followed God well enough. We all know what a royal hash Abraham made of his life when he followed God and how many times he, he lied, deceived himself and lied about his wife being his wife and called her his sister and so that he, would not, he could spare his own neck. No, you are not God's nation. I am not God's nation simply because I'm good enough. I am God's nation and you are God's nation because we've been ransomed by the all-sufficient work of the Son, our Savior. So let's just consider a few verses here, shall we? When we talk about why is that necessary, it's because Jesus is uniquely qualified. You and I are not qualified. He is, it says in that paragraph, he's our mediator from the Father. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8 says, Then I said, this is Jesus actually, this is the Son in the Psalms speaking through the psalmist, See, I have come. In the scroll is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. This is the Son telling the Father, I delight to do what you've sent me to do before he came to do it. Isn't that beautiful? He embraces this mediatorial responsibility. He embraces that responsibility of prophet, priest, and king so that he can go and delight in the Father's will of being sent to do it. This is what he does all the time. This is all that Jesus delights to do is to do his Father's will. And he is sent by his father to go accomplish these tasks. And that's all he's concerned with. Again, if you've been following along in our John series, you've seen this already. And we're going to see it more and more as we get back into it here in a few weeks. But what, what exactly was he delighted to do? What was it that the father told him to do? Well, Galatians 4, 3 through 5 says this, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery on the elementary elements of the, of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, as I've already mentioned, the reason why you and I are God's nation is because the Son was sent from the Father and He replaces Adam's head, He replaces our disobedience, our unrighteousness with His righteousness for us. It's the great exchange. You and I deserve death, we get life. Jesus deserve, is the source of life, but He takes on our death for us. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely beautiful. And to the extent of what he accomplished then, look at what it says there in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we, we might be the what? Righteousness of God. Now how does that work? It doesn't work in our economy, does it? We don't think that way as humanity. We think of things we must do to earn our own righteousness. But we get Jesus' righteousness and we become the righteousness of God. So we are a chosen people and we're a chosen, beloved new nation because we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed by the Son, and by virtue, what else do we earn from that? Well, we earn what Adam failed to keep, which is what? Bearing the image of God. See, Adam left the guard with Eve, and they were still image bearers, but they were marred image bearers. 
They were stained. They were broken image bearers. But in Christ, you and I, because we've been ransomed by the Son in this new nation, we're transformed into new image bearers and new image bearers, transformed and empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, I mentioned this a few moments ago, but let's think about it a little bit more clearly. It says in Genesis 2-7, when God formed him from the dust of the ground, what did he do? He breathed life into him. Now, is that just oxygen? No, that's not just oxygen. That's ruach. Ruach in Hebrew is spirit. The breath of God is the spirit of God being breathed into him. The, what, by virtue of Adam being made in the image of God was because he was filled with the spirit. He was, God's presence literally resided inside Adam. This is that Ruach we were talking about. So it's not merely air in our lungs, but it's breathing his spirit into man. And consequently, this is the death that Adam earned. Not just physical death. Of course, Adam died physically, and so did Eve die physically, and so will all of us die physically. But he earned a much more heinous death. It was a spiritual death. The Ruach that was in him, the spirit of God that was in him, now was leaving him. And as he leaves the garden, he leaves, only knowing that perhaps God's promises, but how will they be fulfilled? He didn't know. And neither did his wife. And he earned that not only for himself and for Eve, what did he earned it for? He earned it for all of humanity, all of the prodigy of God, all of, I'm sorry, all the prodigy of Adam. The spirit of God in his presence and his people would no longer be in them. But here's what's wonderful. It's not, even though what Adam had earned deserved death, God, his presence never fully left them, but was among them, those, at least those chosen people God chose to work with and to reveal himself to. And we see this in what? The tabernacle, right? We see this in the temple. And, and so long as God had the tabernacle at the center of their, of their, of their, of their camp, encampment, and they moved about throughout the wilderness and eventually found themselves established in Jerusalem. This tabernacle had the, you know, the, the smoke that came from the tabernacle and it was to represent that as, as, as God goes, you go with him and he will be among you and he'll be there for you. That was the most mankind could depend on because they, Adam earned death for mankind. So God himself, at least temporarily, creates this tabernacle so that he could be among people that he had chosen and called out for himself until the day comes when he would send his son Jesus. And through his son Jesus, what would he do? He would send his spirit, and his spirit would no longer go around in encampments and in tents, but would actually reside in mankind again, reside in those who are of faith in Christ again. We see this promise, and this is where I want to spend a little bit of time this morning, we see this promise in Ezekiel. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I go here often to reflect upon God's Word. We see it. Let's just pick up in verse, uh, chapter 36. You can turn there if you want to. We're going to look at verses 25 through 28. Look at the promise God makes here. He says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. This is the promise God is telling Israel. Even though Israel's in disobedience and falling more and more in disobedience, they're, they're, they're showing that they are nothing. They, are, they have not descended far. The, the acorn hasn't fallen far from the tree of Adam. 
He says, I will sprinkle you clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave you your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. It's a promise. What you fail to be, Israel, I'm going to make you be. I'm making a promise to you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And I love it here. It just says, I'm going to take it all on me. Right? I will remove your heart of stone. You can't remove your heart of stone. I will give you a new heart of flesh. I will place my spirit in you, and I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my word. And says, you don't want to do that, but I'm going to do it, make it possible for you to do that through my spirit in you. Wonderful. Absolutely amazing. Church, I hope your affections for what it means to people, the people of God, is starting to lift a little bit this morning. This is everything God has been promising since the beginning and is ratified and fulfilled in Jesus and we now live in the glories of all of that that's happened before us. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And of course we know this is fulfilled on Pentecost, right? Acts 2. I, don't, I won't go there since we've studied it recently. But it's just that point. Peter begins preaching and all of a sudden people are like, what's going on here? And the Spirit falls and it fills God's people. First time the Spirit has indwelt anybody in a massive sense, since the garden. We know that there have been some people who were filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament, but there were rare occasions. But by and large, the Spirit has not indwelt God's people inside them since the garden. And Pentecost is God saying, you're my holy nation, redeemed by my Son, filled by my Spirit, now to be my new image bearers. Friends, we are God's new nation of redeemed image bearers. This is what it means to be the church. Now that's important, namely for what we're going to spend a couple more minutes talking about next. Throughout the scriptures, as God is unfolding all of this plan for us, that we are clueless about oftentimes, or at least the people of God were until Jesus came, God's giving functions to this new nation, and it's namely two functions. If you want to know why we do what we do here at Grace Church, it's primarily these two functions. And we're going to tease these out over the next few weeks. First, the first function is to be God's new family. All other families fail in comparison to being a part of God's new family. Why? Because they're indwelt with sin, not indwelt with the Spirit. We are to be God's new family. And the second is going to be to be God's new priesthood. Let's talk about being God's new family. What does it mean? Well, we see, when we're talking about God's new family, and by the way, if you go through our new members class, we talk about a little bit of this in there. To be God's new family means we're the body of Christ. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through uh, 27. Love that passage as well. And it's, it's, it's so helpful for us. And you know the passage, you know, like, what does it say there in verse... Um, for just as the body is one and has many parts, all the parts that a body... Uh, though the, many are one, are one body, so also in Christ. 
For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not that for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am, an, I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. And you get the point. So to say that we're a family, to be the body of Christ, means we are interdependent. Now this strikes a chord in our world. Because interdependence in our world is not what we are striving for. The world's striving for radical autonomy. Radical individualism. I'll mention that later on here in terms of the threats. But we are interdependent as the family of God. We are the family of Christ, the Bible will say in different places. Most notably, when we're talking about being the family of Christ, it means we're not just interdependent, but we're interrelated. To be interrelated means what binds us is what? Not the melanin in our skin. Not the party, political party of our choosing. Not our sexual persuasion. But we're bound by the Spirit through the ransomed work of the Son as the people of God. Do we understand that? To be the family of God, and then we see this in Ephesians 2, right? He breaks down that wall of hostility between different people, different melanins, different persuasions. Namely, the Greeks and the Jews. He says it so much right here in this own passage we just read, right? Whether you're Jew or Greek or slave or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. So what is our identity as the family of Christ? To be people who are interrelated in Christ. That is our only, that is our DNA. Our DNA is the work of Christ. It is not your unique individualism. And not your unique subculture or culture or ethnicity or whatever else you want to put into those things. These are not what binds the people of God. And so when we live in a culture that wants to continue to fray out by every little possible distinction, we as the people of God go, no, 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 no. We come back into the whole because the whole is Christ. That's who we are. We're the house of God. We saw in 1 Peter there that we're, we're built on the what? The cornerstone. Please understand something. And this has proved itself out throughout the Old Testament. It's proved itself out throughout history. Nations that honor the people of God, God finds ways to bless those nations. And nations that don't honor the people of God, well, they usually fade off into oblivion. The church, as the building of God, as the, this glorious structure, provides structure for the world so long as we're in it. There would be a day when Jesus will remove his church for a while, perhaps. We don't know. We, we're all, we all have different perspectives on these things. But at the end of the day, there's a day, and when that structure is removed from the earth, what happens to the rest of the earth? It collapses. It's like taking your skeleton, and if it's removed, what happens to the rest of your body and organs? It's kind of flattens, doesn't it? That's what's going to happen to the rest of the world when the, when the church one day is removed. We must remember these things. So we're the family of God. That's our first function. 
The second function is that we are the priesthood of God. Again, going back to 1 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, we see this beautifully picked out. Let's just read a couple of these portions again. Verse 9 particularly, if I can never find my way back there. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who has called you out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. This is our work, mediatorial function. We go out as a kingdom of priests into the world under the head priest, Jesus. And we mediate to the world what it means to be the people of God. So our job as mediators in some sense, and again, I'm talking about mediators with a lowercase m. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. You, you, you hopefully see that. It, it, it's talking about what we do. Some of you have asked questions why we take Lord's Supper every Sunday. Because we believe this is part of the mediating responsibility of the church. We do the ordinances every Sunday, at least this, baptism when people get baptized, of course, and preaching of the gospel. This is how we mediate. We gather the body together on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, to what God has commanded His people to do, and we mediate. And we do it primarily through the ordinances and through the preaching of the Word. That's what we do. We don't only mediate, we have a missionary call, what we see in Matthew chapter 28, right? To go preach the gospel, make disciples. We have a declare and invite task that's about each one of us individually as we leave this place this morning. So let's just, again, now let's, let me get, I want to get to our second point here, because I haven't even got to the second point. When you put all of this together, this wonderful stuff that we've just been trying to mine out for the last few minutes, the church, I love how Mark Dever says it. Mark Dever has a way of just expressing this. The church is the gospel made visible. If you don't get that, you don't understand the, the, the depth and the reality. So, so let me say it this way. If you fail in being the church, in some way you're going to fail at articulating and communicating the gospel clearly. That's why being the church is always important in, in every generation. Dever says it this way, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations makes the gospel visible. So just by being here this morning is an evangelistic work. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now, I said we want to talk about the beauty, lift our eyes to the beauty of the church. Let's talk about for a minute, and I'm going to try and run through these fairly rapidly. What are the threats then that the church needs to be aware of? Well, I want to say from the very beginning, before we jump into the threats, we tend to think the threats are external. Right? We tend to think new laws, perhaps moral progressivism, 
cultural trends that don't square with the Bible, worldly philosophies that shift the rules of cultural discourse in life. We tend to think those are our greatest threats to the church, but in reality, they're not. I like what Robert Godfrey, who leads up Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry for many years before he passed, he says, no, our greatest threat, and if you examine Scripture, has always been internal. Always internal. And so I want to share with you what I think are a few true threats to us as a church in, in, at large in America, perhaps, but even, frankly, in our own fellowship, just so that we would know what would, we could see these threats more clearly if and when they happen. Number one, there's a neglect of assembling as the body on the Lord's day. That's your number one threat. Almost always in Scripture, when people fail to assemble as God's people, that should immediately tell, should send off you know, alarms in us that there's something wrong. This is almost always the starting point of all true threats as we see them throughout any age. There's always something, and we see this in our own culture, something else is getting put on the front burner for us on our Sunday activities, isn't it? We've got to be careful of these things. And Christians are not exempt to these things. We follow in suit so many times, do we not? Well, well, we'll use this tired old trope. Well, we don't have to go to the church to be, the, be Christians. You've heard that one? Sorry. That's not going to translate well to the audio. But it's just not good. Because as we've already noted, it's the church that makes the gospel visible. So when the church is done right, the, church, the gospel has its best ability to shine brightly. So don't come at me with your tired old thing. Well, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Wrong. I'm not saying going to church makes you a Christian, but being the church is implicit to being a Christian. It just is. Um, well, you may have heard someone say, and this is one of the guys who want to get all theologically nerdy on you. I love these guys. Uh, well, Christ is our Sabbath. So um, the call to keep the Sabbath in the Old Testament has passed away. Uh, wrong again, by the way. Wrong again. Yes, Christ is our ultimate Sabbath. He is our ultimate rest. And that is absolutely wonderfully true for all of us. But they fall short because ultimately God has, has instituted this Sabbath as part of his creation order. It's something God has told his people from the very beginning. Set this day apart so that you might worship the Lord. And he establishes it in Israel, but it has not passed away because it's part of the moral law. The Ten Commandments. Everything else has been filled with Christ. Remember, and Christ has, of course, fulfilled the moral law, but that moral law still is binding on all of God's people. And part of that moral law is keeping the Sabbath. So don't come at me with that either. And listen, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, meaning you've got to be here every second of every Sunday, and you've got to do it every day, all day long kind of thing. There are those groups, and, and I wonderfully I, I learned from those guys, but I think at, at the end of the day, the first threat is this. When we have this habitual neglect of gathering on the Lord's day with the body of Christ, it prevents the greatest of all threats to the church. Because we said that there's other things that can substitute for that, and there isn't. Second threat, and I mentioned this earlier, overrealized individualism and autonomy. Again, as I said earlier, this is the streams in which we swim in in our culture today. Overrealized individualism and autonomy. 
I love Carl Truman's book. You've heard me talk about it. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he, it's a watershed book. And anyone who, I'm telling you, man, if you can endure it, it's a pretty heavy, lofty book, but it's a really wonderful read. He unpacks the philosophical, moral, and cultural developments that have led to what we will find in our modern culture of extreme individualism and extreme self-autonomy. And he says these things, the church has a wonderful opportunity to show and correct by the way we live together, to reject extreme individualism, to reject self-autonomy. Now, again, he's not saying, and I'm not saying, that there's not individual responsibility. He's not saying, and I'm not saying, that there's not wonderful things that you and I will participate individually and that we should pursue and can pursue. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is when that becomes the rule of the day, that the rule and the goal and purpose of life is for you to find your ultimate self, that is not the purpose of your life. Now, I say that's a threat to the church because that kind of self-aggrandizement is creeping into the church for generations. It starts with generational demands and divisions. When we have to make a room for every little piece of the church and we say we have a class for this and a ministry for that, like that's where it started many generations ago, many decades ago. But look how it's kind of begin to continue to take shape. Eventually we start taking marketplace ideals and we, we, we begin to define the church by consumer realities. What do we need to do to get people in the door? What kind of things do we need to do to get people on the, in, through the door and, and make them happy so that they'll want to be here? This is the way we define evangelism in our culture. And unfortunately, that's not the way the scriptures could declare evangelism. Now look, that's again, not to say that we don't want to root out unnecessary obstacles, of course. But when we allow those things to become the rules of the day, what happens is, is that our consumer-driven evangelism will eventually lead to a moral decomposition, will it not? Because we'll begin to accommodate everything. When the culture shifts on certain things, we will begin to shift on it as well, won't we? Because what's our main objective? Get people in the door. That's not what evangelism is all about. Evangelism is about proclaiming the gospel, giving people freedom in Christ, show them what, what he has accomplished for them on the cross and through his resurrection. Third threat. A fatigued understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. A fatigued understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. Not one of us in this room right now would argue that the Bible is not inerrant or infallible. Not one of us. But if we're honest, the biggest challenges to our everyday Christian living is do we really believe the Scripture is sufficient for us? That it actually has truth for the varying complex things that we face as people. It's not that we don't believe the Bible's true, it's that can the Bible actually reach in? Does the Bible have a reach into our life? The, where the Bible speaks clearly, we should speak clearly. Where the Bible's maybe less clear on some things, maybe things that we might do, we need to be careful and be flexible, of course, but the amazing thing is that every time I have went and turned to the Bible about various complex issues that we face in our culture, guess what happens? God gives wisdom. He gives us wisdom how to navigate those complex realities that we face. Third thing, I mean a fourth thing, threat, is grasping the unity and the diversity of the local church, of the church universal, I'm sorry. 
I don't think we appreciate this enough. We're reformed. Well, I'm reformed. Not all of us in here are reformed. It's okay. We love you too. Um, but uh, but we, we want in our own fellowship, as much as we may have certain theological anchors of what we teach here, we, we want to make room for people who are on a journey together a little bit. And that's on our local level. But sometimes I don't think that we do a good job of saying that like we tend to be very caustic at other believers, other denominations when they differ with us. Um, one of my greatest joys is getting to know Sostin, who's the pastor of the Congolese Fellowship here. Sosin, I would differ on a number of theological issues. But Sosin's one of the most godly men I've met in my life. He's one of the most supportive, one of the most kind, one of the most generous people. He's, actually, their church is going to help us finish paying for the chairs, by the way. They're just, you can see the marks of genuine faith in that guy's life and in his fellowship. Got to spend time yesterday. I was here most of the day working on a sermon, and his people here working, they're, they're doing worship team practice. Just wonderful, generous people who love Jesus. We don't have to agree on every little detail on everything. I love the uh, statement in the essentials, unity, in the non essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. Man, I want to tell you right now, the church needs to recover that today. Just go look at social media, and, I, and it, it proves the point, right? All things, I'm sorry, in essentials unity, meaning there are things that we say are, are bulwarks in the, in the Christian faith. Absolutely. But there are some things that are not, and we need to have liberty there for believers. But in all things, we should be charitable to one another. But I don't know that we appreciate that. I think the Apostle Creed should be our standard, right? Here's what the Apostle Creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our, our Lord, who, is, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, who crucified, died, and, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. If that's our, that, this was one of the earliest articulated creeds of the church. I'm comfortable with anyone who can fall within that. Now, we might have to quibble on some things, but we should have a charitable discourse with people when we go broader than this. Amen? I think it's possible. Two more, and we're done. Trading fear of God for fear of man. Again, we just. We tend to do this in the church. We, we, I like what John Piper says, God rests casually on the American church. We don't have this preeminent, like deep um, fear of God. We tend to be fear of man. Will I not be approved by man? Will I not be approved by culture? That's a threat to the church, friends. And last, and I love this, I got this from Derek Thomas, a cold and indifferent affection for Jesus. That there is a possibility, even in a doctrinaire, rich, theological environment like we have here at Grace Church, still still end up like the church at Ephesus in, Re in Revelation chapter 2, to grow cold. I don't ever want to grow cold in my affections for Jesus, but it's always been a threat against us. Friends, as we close, let me encourage you to grasp the beauty 
the diversity, the unity that is the church as we unpack that over the course of the next few weeks. I hope I've, I know it's been a little longer sermon, but I hope this has helped you just go, oh man, this is, this is so much what we need. And may over the course of the next few weeks, we be reminded of what it is that we get the pleasure to participate in by God's grace. And may we gain a renewed desire to place the church as the central commitment of our daily and weekly rhythms. And may we recognize our call to display the gospel through our church life today and until Jesus returns. Let's pray.